0: I've lived in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Sapio arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Last month, for the first time in over a year, I was able to go to a live performance, and it was at the Algonquin Arts Theatre in Manasquan. How nice to be out in public and to be seeing a live performance, and by the way, it was really good. And while I was there, I was able to tap Pam Ward, the Executive Director, and get her be my next interview. Pam and I have known each other since our days at the Dam Site Dinner Theater but she's gone so much farther in the arts but I'm gonna let you hear her talk about it. Hello Pam. Hello Lucille. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm gonna jump right in and ask you about some of the plays that you do at the Algonquin. Okay. Most plays heavily feature male roles and we know from our experience at the Dam Site that many if not most of female roles in a lot of plays are either window dressing or simply bit parts. Mm -hmm. How much of a concerted effort has the Algonquin made to find scripts
1: with strong female roles? That's an interesting question because I, I think I can speak for most local theaters in saying that by a lot. The preponderance of talent that comes out for shows is female. We tend to have a much greater selection of female performers than we do of male performers. And you have multiple theaters kind of duking it out over mm-hmm. the few men that are out there that have the skill and have the talent to handle major roles. But you also have to take into account also what your audience is going to come out to see. So there are there are so many different elements that go into choosing each show. It's commonsensical for us to be looking for for shows that have strong female characters because we have so many strong female performers. Is it hard to find scripts with strong female characters? In the more nostalgic scripts, it is. In the more contemporary pieces, you tend to see the women playing a much more prominent role. As if, for instance, in last season, we had Mamma Mia. Then the men are just sort of part of the denouement. They are not the featured roles in the show. We were lucky enough to have steel magnolias last year, which is all females. And the productions that you do are both professional and amateur, correct? correct. So how do you balance the two? To be very frank, cost is a huge part of that. We would never be in a situation where we would be charging people $135 a seat to see a show. It really comes down to a balance of how we keep our ticket prices accessible to everybody. Because the you know the other thing that we want to do is get as many people seeing theater as we can. So uh, as we begin to work through our our budgets every year, this is these are the things that come into play. What other live? Venues you consider to be your top competition? Would it be the New Brunswick stages? nationwide we look at theaters as, as being in tiers. Mm-hmm. For us in the immediate area in direct competition with us would be a company like Axelrod right outside Asbury Park or Phoenix. Their home is at the Basie but also you know college theaters where you you have pre-professionals and professionals and you know longtime season professionals who are basically all working together on the same stage. I think when you get up to the state theater level or McCarter or or George Street mm. they're the next tier up from yeah. us they're sort of like off off Broadway right and a lot of times that you know like a, a two river that's what they're always looking to do and they de- they develop a lot of new stuff which we don't do now, now how did you start in the arts? I really wish I had an answer to that that was not just so entirely random. My parents basically, at at gunpoint, forced me to join a church choir. When I got into high school, I decided that I would audition for a musical. When I got to college, I worked to put myself through school, and one of the jobs that I happened to have gotten was working in a dinner theater at the Club Binet. I wound up going from that dinner theater to the dam site, which was where I met all of you guys. I wound up taking a class in theater education. And at that point, I decided to focus exclusively on theater. And I was very fortunate in that I have always worked in theater or in the arts. Now, where did you see your career heading? Did you think acting, directing, administration? Teaching was my bread and butter for about 10 years, and I really enjoyed it. And the thing that I really enjoyed about it was seeing kids that were very much like I was when I was a kid. I would be dealing with kids and they would be very reluctant to participate, even to the point of hostility. Mm. And, you know, teachers would be like, well, you know, they're just a problem. And it's like, no, the kid is just scared to death. And it was really a fascinating process to me to watch how you could use theater to really bring these kids out in a way that they felt very comfortable in and very safe in. Well, because and you're you're, pl- you're being someone else. Right. And that was really appealing to yeah. them. And once you sort of got through the shell and made them feel safe enough and comfortable enough to do it, it was really amazing what you could accomplish. So I, I was really working in theater education for a long time. First, I was at a little tiny company in Princeton, and then we got sort of absorbed into McCarter. So I wound up at McCarter for 10 years. And then I went to a New York company for a couple of years, but then I got recruited up to Trinity Rep in Rhode Island. I had a a class, it was a high school class, and they had to do something on Shakespeare. And the teacher was just tearing her hair out, and she was like, this is the worst group of kids, they're really resistant, they're real wise guys, and I can't do anything with them.
0: You know what that reminds me of? When people go, oh, it was a really bad audience. Yeah.
1: (laughs) No, it's not the audience. <laughs> and that's exactly that's what I've always found with teachers in Shakespeare. It's like it's it's not Shakespeare, you're teaching it wrong. So they gave me this class of kids and it, it they were they were tough. But I found every sexy, expletive filled, violent scene that I could in Shakespeare <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of it, I had some of the best Shakespeare performances I had ever seen from kids. You know, when we broke it down, they really related to it. And I have to say that the, the audience of students who could have been really awful were so supportive. But they were supportive because the performances were yeah. great and they, they gave him a standing ovation, and it was, it was really one of those moments that for you know, all of the other times, I'd look at it and go, why, why am I doing this? It's like, this is why I'm doing yeah. it. You know, so many school districts have really cut back or eliminated arts education.
0: I know one of the goals of the Algonquin is to provide an arts education to local residents and visitors to the area. But isn't that the role of schools? How can we change it so that schools reclaim
1: that responsibility? How do we make boards of education see the value in the arts? I've been having this same conversation Mm -hmm. for the 35 years that I've been involved in the arts. This is a societal question. You can do more than one thing at a time. It's impossible to teach one subject at a time because they all touch on each other. You know, you can't understand science without understanding language. Algebra totally defeated me. But when I got to college, I had to work with a scenic designer. I had to work with a lighting designer. And the first day that I sat in a lighting designer's lecture, I learned the Pythagorean theorem and what it meant.
0: Because you could see the practical application Because
1: suddenly it was like, oh, the cone of a light is a triangle. Mm. And in order to calculate throw, and in order to calculate brightness, and in order to calculate how much of the stage I'm covering, I have to be able to understand it. And when I saw the practical application, it made total sense to me. I had to take a class, Quantitative Methods of Urban Analysis. Wow.
0: Oh my God, like thank God that he's, he graded us on a curve. But <laughs> when I got into radio and started dealing with ratings, right? it's all about statistics. Yes. And I became the expert in my office on statistical analysis of
1: audiences. It's because I could see the relationship in real time. What was interesting to me was after all of those years of struggle with geometry and trigonometry, suddenly when I was working with lighting designers who didn't want to be bothered with the nuts and bolts, they would turn to me and say, here, figure this out. And there I would be. And it was effortless because it made sense. It was in the context of something. Teaching theater and history is the easiest thing in the world because you can trace the arc of humankind by following theater. It's just a storytelling process. Yeah. Um, what's more mathematical than music? Mm-hmm. So, aside from grants, where else does the financial backing for the Algonquin come from? We are in a very rare position for most theaters because we earn about 75% of mm. our revenue. We do do fundraisers, but attending fundraisers is one of the worst ways to raise money because your overhead is so high have people been more or less generous over the past year they've been incredibly generous people at the algonquin treat the algonquin like their living room and the people who come all the time were calling us before we were reaching out to them we had a lot of our corporate support respond instantly they just came out of the woodwork and were Mm -hmm. like how much do you need we also have a couple of incredibly generous regular donors they were like we'll match everything to ten thousand dollars It was an incredible boost to us between our donors and the little bit that we were able to continue to earn. And then, of course, through the federal funding programs, the organization never lost stability. I know how I think people describe me, but how do you think people describe you? I don't have the slightest idea. Um, and, And I have to say, I stopped being concerned about it a while ago years ago a person that i know described me to another person as being the nicest person he had ever met and i didn't realize at the time that this was not a compliment because the subtext of being nice is this is somebody who will do things for you and not expect anything in return You're a pushover. right so I decided at that point that it was, it was kind of important to not be perceived as that person. And what has happened, I think, is now the opposite, is that I have people who are afraid of me, which I don't understand. When you have control over something that somebody wants or they want to do or, or what have you, that also, I think, changes the way people mm-hmm. perceive you. What is it about you that people either don't know or just don't get? I am not a social person. And I wouldn't have known that. I am very uncomfortable with people I don't know. I'm very private. I'm never going to be the life of the party. We are so completely opposite. Well, and the thing is, (laughs) it's sort of the opposite of my professional persona. My professional persona is very extroverted because it's required. I've gotten to the point where it no longer fills me with anxiety or anything else because when I first started to have to be a boss, it was really uncomfortable. Mm. Personally, I'm not a person who's gonna go out and seek out groups of people. In fact, I'll do anything to avoid being in groups of people. It's just not a comfortable situation for me and I think a lot of the time people can misinterpret that as not liking them or and it it has nothing to do with like or dislike it just has to do with my own comfort level and what I like to do Mm -hmm. mostly I'm solitary do you have a secret
0: talent secret well I don't know if it's hidden talent
1: let's say a hidden talent what would be surprising to more people would be that I'm I'm very good with power tools I would say my secret talent would be being able to build things and fix things Uh, and even though you're a girl well and you know it's it really infuriates me because my father was a contractor and I grew up working with him he would fix forklifts in our garage as a as a sideline to his regular job so we were always learning as we were going along so how to splice a broken pipe and Mm -hmm. you know how to replace sheetrock how to repair holes how to paint correctly how to cut molding how to put in a shelf I've owned three houses, and all three of them were wrecks when I got them. And I lived in them while yeah. they were we, we renovated them way, way back. The first time that I bought a house, my father said to me while we were working on it, he was like, "You know, we should we should get somebody to come in and film this." And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, right." Who's going to be interested? Right. <laughs> and it was like we could have done this twenty years before. You could have been
0: the original I could have been rubber. on
1: HGTV. You could have been the Joanna and Chip. That's right. <laughs> and I missed my opportunity.
0: Yeah. Let me make this the last question. And it's a two part question. Okay. What was the biggest mistake you've made in your career and what was the best decision?
1: I would say the biggest mistake, I didn't work harder at being a professional actor. I was so scared of Mm. failing that I didn't really give it the shot that I think that I should have. I was not one of those kids that was like an actor, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had to work hard to get every performance out of myself. And I did. I did work hard at it. Just because of my looks, I was never going to be an ingenue. I was going to be a character. Although there are probably more roles for character actors. Absolutely. But I just went, this is this is a waste of time. I'm I'm not I'm not good looking enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not you know, all of the things that you're told over and over and over again from actually going into the profession, mostly by acting teachers who are in the same pool of actors that you're gonna be competing in, it scared the living daylights out of me. Yeah. Um, I was afraid of failing at that. Which is really weird because I wasn't I was not particularly afraid of failing at anything else. Hmm. It was just that one particular area what part would you really love to play that's hard to say because there are just so many good ones if you asked me this 20 years ago I would have said some female ingenue from musical theater and now I look at it and I say ugh, yeah they're the worst yeah, roles. yeah they're, they're, so they are yeah. the worst roles they just don't have they, they they have no substance to them and ironically the part that I've always wanted to play MacDuff, either Macbeth or MacDuff. I have just always found them absolutely fascinating.
0: I really, really wanted to do same time next year. Oh, I love that play with Dennis Lynch.
1: Oh my God, that would have been fantastic. Oh, I wanted that part so badly. That's that is a wonderful play. Yeah, and we have been. That's the thing. Neil
0: Simon wrote a lot of good female.
1: Oh, yeah. Parts. Well, I I did um, Brighton Beach Memoirs last year. We had had a show where somebody dropped out and they had to replace them on short notice. And I was like, why didn't you just ask me? I would have done it. And then the next year he was like, would you play this role? And I played Kate, the mother, in Brighton Beach Memoirs. And it's a great role. But you know what's funny is in in doing local theater, I work with directors who are terrific directors. Mm -hmm. And I work with directors who are awful directors. You know, I thought, you know, you get to a certain level and that's not true anymore. Well, it's exactly the same. You know, when you start to equate what you do in the theater with any other profession, because it is a profession you understand that there are people who got where they are because they're related to somebody, because nobody knows what they're talking yeah. about, and they just assume they're smarter than them or well, whatever. Well, you know, and
0: it's the same in business, though. When I was working for a company that sold training to the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I had never sold training before, and I'd never worked in the pharmaceutical industry, but I'd been selling right. for over 25 years. So we would put together pitches, and I would think, like, oh, I wouldn't do it this way, but I guess they know what they're doing. I realized, finally, after a year and a half, He doesn't know how to sell to the
1: pharmaceutical industry. Selling is selling. Right. And I would say, to go back to an earlier question, that, you know, the smartest thing was beginning to trust that I knew what I was talking about Mm -hmm. in any area. And not, not always assuming that somebody else knew better than I did. Because... I think a lot of people wind up wasting a lot of time assuming people know what they're talking about. And then I saw this great quote from Ricky Gervais. I love him. And it said, it's, don't worry, nobody else knows what they're doing either. (laughs) And that's sort of become like my mantra. But I'm going to trust, based on my experience, that I know what I'm talking about, and I know what needs to be done, and I can tell you what needs to be done. And if it doesn't work out, you can hold me completely accountable. And the, I mean, the other thing that I found is that as soon as you say you can hold me completely accountable, you've you've already put yourself in the stratosphere above yeah. almost everybody else. There's nobody else, because nobody else is going to say that. So once you've you know just said I'm I'm, I'm going to put my neck on the on the block here, <laughs> then everybody just trusts you must know what you're doing. Pam, thanks so much for spending this time with me. Oh, my Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Sorry, I, I told you. You have to tell me to stop talking. I'll just <laughs> rattle on and on.
0: I love the arts, and I love to talk, and that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucila Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. we